0: Good afternoon, and welcome once again to another episode of Community Relations Corner, as we discuss issues of concern to New York's Jewish community and our friends and partners all over the city. I'm your host, Michael Miller, the Executive Vice President and CEO of the Jewish Community Relations Council of New York of the JCRC. On each episode of Community Relations Corner, we're joined by guests representing the political, religious, economic, and diverse community leadership in New York, many of whom I've had the honor to get to know over the course of my lengthy tenure here at JCRCNY. Together we'll discuss current events impacting New York's Jewish community and its neighbors, as well as the state of our city, of our state, of our nation, and of the world. And I'm so excited, so excited to be joined today by a a longtime colleague and friend, the Executive Director of Catholic Charities in New York, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome, Monsignor Sullivan. Michael, thank you so much for uh, inviting me to be with you this afternoon. I'm just
1: delighted to join you and your audience.
0: Thank you. We're so happy to have you here. Uh, The audience uh, should be aware that uh, this is kind of this for that. Um, uh, Monsignor Sullivan does a radio show on on the Catholic channel, Satellite Radio, and very frequently uh, over various holidays, whether it's Passover or the high holidays, uh, will invite me on to have a conversation with him. And so this is payback time.
1: <laughs> well, I have to tell you, if every time I had to pay back, it was as delightful as this, I'd incur a lot
0: of debts. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks so much for being here. And I, I I think that I'd like to get into two things before we deal with uh, real su- substantive issues. Uh, one of them uh, is uh, Monsignor Sullivan, we've known each other for quite a while, but I don't recall as to where you were born, uh, where you grew up, and why are you determined to enter into the priesthood. Michael, I'm happy to um, kind of share that with you and with your listeners. I was born in the Bronx.
1: And um, the, as we know, the Bronx is the only part of New York City connected to the mainland. So I was born in the Bronx. Um, <laughs> And then when I was five, moved to um, just a little bit north, but actually across the border into Yonkers. And that's where I went to elementary school. Um, One of the things that I always think was very, very um, influential for me is that the block that I lived on in in, in, um, in Yonkers was very diverse. It was diverse religiously, ethnically, and I think that was probably a pretty important part of my, uh, my growing up in, in Yonkers. But I would say that the point that was probably the <clears throat> most influential for me, and as Michael, as you know, the demographic changes in New York have been significant. And there was a part, a time in New York when a lot of people were fleeing New York. They thought it was unsafe. They didn't like some of the ethnic changes that were there. So some of the people with whom I grew up in Yonkers, and that would have been in the 50s, 60s, um, you know, they liked being in Yonkers. They liked being away from New York City, even though it was right next door. Very, very important to me was I went to high school in New York City, in Manhattan, the Upper West Side. And that's where I kind of began to explore the possibility of my becoming a priest. But the thing that was critical about that was that for four years, I took the New York City subways from the Bronx, Van Cortland Park in the Bronx, down to the Upper West Side. And so at a time when there was a lot of turmoil in New York City, and quite frankly, there was legitimate fears about people's safety I took that every day. So I developed a feel for New York City that I wasn't afraid of it. Maybe I should have been, but it was my city because I rode the subways, I took took part in it. So that's a little bit of of you know my background. I could go on a lot longer but but Michael if you want to kind of focus where I go I'd be very happy.
0: Yeah, well, I, I I think where we should go is to where you are now. Well, before we get there, is I I also grew up in the Bronx. I, I was not born in the Bronx. I was born in a hospital in Manhattan, but um, my father was a rabbi in Northwest Bronx. Uh, that that's what that was our neighbor. That was our hood, Kingsbridge Heights. So what what was your neighborhood in the Bronx?
1: Well, it was the corner of, of uh, <clears throat> Bainbridge Avenue in Gun Hill. So not too oh, far away not from too far away. Not too far away. Right around. across the street from what was the first campus of Montefiore Hospital?
0: Oh, really? That I wasn't aware of. I I grew up down the block from the Cambridge Armory, uh, just right. uh, on Davidson Avenue, uh, not that far, of course, from uh, what most people know as Lehman College. Back they back then in those days, it was Hunter Uptown um, and various uh, other public schools, in, including DeWitt Clinton High School. So um, when I was
1: ordained, when I was ordained, our internship year is as a deacon. My assignment was on University Avenue in a church just south of Fordham Road, Holy Spirit
0: right. Parish.
1: So uh, I know that area of the Bronx
0: pretty well. Okay. Uh, so we're, we're in Yiddish, we were called Lanzman. We, we come from the uh, the same part of, uh, of of the Bronx, I guess, as opposed to Europe. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, so, I, our, our viewers, listeners uh, may not be aware of the organization that you over which you serve as executive director, Catholic Charities. Uh, so, can you give us, give us a, a snapshot of uh, how you would define maybe the elevator pitch on how you define Catholic Charities? Sure. I would define it very simply as the Catholic UJA. Uh-huh. That
1: is what, seriously, that is the closest analogy that we have. We are a human service federation of some 90 agencies. We take great pride in the fact that we have individual agencies in almost every community in the New York metropolitan area. So why, when you put us together, we provide millions of dollars of services each year, but we're really proud that we are community-based, and we touch almost every human need. We protect children. We help nurture youth. We support families. We respond to crises like after 9-11, Superstorm Sandy, now with COVID we respond. We do a lot of work making sure people are housed, whether it be building housing or preventing evictions. People are hungry. So we have community uh, food kitchens. We have pantries. A lot of our neighbors, sadly, have some challenges. And so we have residences for those with learning delays, disabilities, mental illnesses. Um, And given that we're in New York, and given our roots, our Catholic social teaching, We do a tremendous amount of work in welcoming and integrating immigrants into Mm -hmm. the New York area and some work with refugees and people seeking asylum too. So that's the broad scope of what we do, Michael.
0: Yeah, so as, thank you. And as a a full blown social service organization similar to UJA, by the way, um, UJA has us as the Jewish Renewal Relations Council of New York and uh, the Archdiocese uh, has the um, uh, the Catholic Community Relations Council, if I remember correctly. Exactly. Um, so you you had referenced uh, COVID and immigrants, uh, homelessness. I want to dive into those. Um, the impact of, of COVID of COVID nineteen of this pandemic has been devastating. Um, From a Catholic Charities perspective, um, what areas have have you been focusing on um, within the framework of of government restrictions, uh, of the impact on, on families, on communities? So one of the things I would say very
1: clearly is, you know, we've been open for business, but it's not been business as usual. Yes. Um, so let me speak about three areas that have been a little bit different. I could talk about the ongoing stuff that we had to pivot, but let me speak about the three areas that we have been focused on specifically to respond to the pandemic, the pandemic. We know in the world that we live in, so much, misinformation that there's a lot of bad information that's out there. Sadly, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not intentionally. So our helplines and our hotlines have remained open. In the first six months of the pandemic, we answered about 50% more calls than we did in ordinary times. And I'm sure there were other agencies. So I don't mean to say anything negative about other agencies, but I, with a little bit of pride, I do quote one of the callers who said, oh, I'm talking to a human voice. In so many other numbers I call, I get voicemail. I'm sure there were other agencies that were answering, but I'm proud that this caller recognized that at Catholic Charities, we like to be as present and personal as possible. So I think we answered more than 22, 23,000 calls for information in the first six months. The other thing which I will mention, and again, Michael, I know how important this is to you, is we need to bring people together. And so we were just blessed that some very, very generous donors decided that people who were not eligible for federal programs, oftentimes because they didn't have the right papers, they didn't have the right documents, that they chose Catholic Charities and the UJA Federation Mm -hmm. as among a very few organizations that would distribute immediately cash assistance. So we provided millions of dollars of cash assistance to thousands of households. And to be honest, Michael, that's not what we do very often. We do a lot of counseling. We do a lot of case management. We do training of people, et cetera. But in this crisis, the need was cash. And we brought together some very, very generous donors. And so we provided, in a relatively short period of time, millions of dollars of cash to people who were left out. The final item I'll mention yeah. is that of food. The, the need for food was just catastrophic. So again, in that six-month period, we did, I believe, what we called, and I'm sure other people did too, we did over 125 pop-up pantries. So we had our regular pantries in regular places, but there were neighborhoods and communities that needed food and people called and said, can you help us? So almost every Friday, we would bring trucks, tents, and bags of food, and do 200, 500, 700 Mm -hmm. families in communities where we didn't have a regular ongoing pantry, but we popped up and we provided that assistance. And we kind of did in that first six months in those pop-ups and a few other places, over a million meals to New Yorkers in, in need. So those are three things that I would say, information, cash, and food. I think, hmm. I think we did a pretty good job through dedicated staff, volunteers, and donors to at least mitigate some of the
0: suffering that our neighbors were feeling. I, th- I think thank you for that. Our, I think our friend uh, Vincent Vien, Vinnie Vinny right I think that he's he's been a part of that uh, through uh, the the Brooklyn Diocese. Yep. Um, and does Catholic Charities cover all of New York City? Catholic Charities covers
1: all of New York City, all of the United States, and all of the world. Really? really? Now, now, we go by different names. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, and each kind of ecclesial religious jurisdiction kind of has its own. So we worked very closely with our sister Catholic charity that covered Brooklyn and Queens, Hmm. because, and that's, uh, you mentioned Vinnie, Uh, but in every part of the United States, there is another Catholic charities with whom we work and with whom we partner. And we're all part of and we use the Latin phrase for charity, Caritas International, which is the national association of Catholic charitable organizations throughout the world.
0: Hmm. Thanks, I, I wanna stick with, with COVID for um, a, sure. f- a few more minutes um, and talk about its impact uh, on, on families and communities, but also its impact on religious life uh, since Catholic Charities, of course, is on the social service side, uh, but it represents the Catholic Church in New York. So what, what impact has, has COVID had on uh, the, the family unit, on the communities that it serves, and most importantly, on religious life?
1: Well, Michael, as you know, that's a very, very broad question. Let me take a part of it, and if there's another part you want me to speak to, just ask me okay. to do that. Um, you know, I think from a spiritual point of view, it, it really has been a humbling experience. Hmm. And if we do it correctly, it can be a very, very deep, profound opportunity for spiritual growth. And let me say this to you in this way. Listen, whether we live Westchester, New Jersey, Connecticut, Long Island, we're all New Yorkers. I mean, this is all New York. And one of the things that is part of being a New Yorker is we're very proud, we're not terribly humble, we're a little bit arrogant, and we think we can control everything. Well, this comes along, and guess what? We New Yorkers are not in control. And if we do it right, we need to reflect and say, you know, as much as we believe in human potential, as much as we believe in the actualization of our God-given dignity and respect, at the end of the day, we are not God. And at the end of the day, we need to be a little bit humble about what we can control and maybe open our lives and our hearts a little bit more to God's providence and to God's um, God's mercy when we need it. So in some ways, I think if we did it right, and I think many people did, it gave them an, gave us an opportunity to say, wait a minute, we're not in charge. And if we thought we were, well, we big, proud, in-control New Yorkers, we weren't. So I think that's one of the things I would say, and uh, there's a lot more. So, Michael, just ask me about what more you'd like me to speak about.
0: Um, well, I, I, I think that you've uh, touched on it um, uh, more than sufficiently. Uh, I, I, I know the impact in our own uh, Jewish community on family life, um, all too many people have been impacted have been impacted in their pocketbooks. Uh, they may have lost their, their jobs or put on, on furlough um, and, and money is scarce. Uh, you talked before uh, about cash assistance. Um, a lot of it is is also revolving around mental health. Uh, yeah. And uh, again, I, I know of the leadership role that uh, you in, in particular have played on the uh, homeless crisis in New York and a lot of that Revolves around that that mental health issue, um, and I, I'm I'm hopeful that uh, with the the um, vaccine now beginning to be uh, distributed, people are beginning to be uh, inoculated. We might see some light at the end of, of this this very dark tunnel. But while we're in this tunnel, uh, the impact on on the uh, family unit is is just devastating.
1: I think that's true, and it it's, it goes a A number of different ways. And I do think, you know, one of the other issues which this has raised up tremendously is yes, we have the political divisiveness in our country, but there is a great deal of social economic divides in this country. And um, just yesterday, I was up at one of our smaller programs in the South Bronx. And I've been there a couple of times since this. It's right in the Mott Haven section Mm -hmm. of the Bronx. Um, And it's right across the street from a New York City housing authority project. Well, those people, those individuals and families living there, they don't have houses in the suburbs. They don't have weekend houses. They don't have big porches where they can easily social distance. And it just brings up the incredible divide that there is because some families, it really, they were able to come together in a much more cohesive way because they had the ability to do this. I've heard of, you know, intergenerational families where the kids had moved away, well, they moved back because those families had the resources to do it. Thanks be to God. When we don't get angry that some people have resources, we get angry that not enough people have enough resources to live their lives in dignity. So it was, could be both an opportunity for families to live in greater solidarity, not running from 27 places to another. They were all doing their Zoom meetings in the same place. Right. Um, but it also provided a great deal of strain on families
0: too. Yeah, and, and most especially on minority populations, disproportionately on minority populations who who feel marginalized in, in so many ways. Uh, we established at JCRC under uh, Rabbi Bob Kaplan, our intergroup relations the division, uh, a, a healthcare disparities coalition, an interfaith healthcare disparities coalition is being built. Uh, so uh, minority populations are are really uh, being uh, de- being hit hardest, I think, uh, here in New York, uh, among uh, all the different uh, populations and ethnic communities and religious communities that we have here.
1: And Michael, let me, something that, you know, in the middle of this, I just realized, which, you know, I probably wouldn't have, I was a little bit dense, but which to me really struck me is so many of the people in the community where I was in Mott Haven and in other places communities of color yes they were essential workers in this pandemic now maybe n- clearly not all of them were working in hospitals but when you went to the grocery store they were the people who were checking you out and when you when you when you took a bus they were the bus drivers mm. and so these were the people who had to mingle in the height of this pandemic. They went home to their own families, hopefully social distancing, but nothing is perfect. So in so many ways, these essential workers were disproportionately impacted because in order for the rest of us to survive, they had to put
0: their lives at risk. Yeah, 100%, and we're very, very grateful. Uh, to all the, the frontline workers for all that they ha- have done, most of them uh, with, uh, without thanks, without uh, the appreciation that they deserve, let alone uh, the impact that the, um, um, that the pandemic has had on their families. Right. Um, speaking about, about impact, um, right before the pandemic hit, uh, we in the Jewish community were terribly impacted by um, uh, a series of, of hate crimes uh, spiking to a level that we haven't uh, seen here uh, in New York in, in many years. Um, and uh, it's not just anti-Semitism. It, it was hatred of, of, of all varieties. Uh, from, from your perch, uh, how do you see that, that hatred and anti-Semitism uh, manifesting today? Are, are, are there any changes that you see since the beginning of the pandemic?
1: Well, I think... The past four, five, six years, you, you pick the time frame, we have become increasingly polarized. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and now it seems we can't have a conversation without shouting at each other. It seems that I can't disagree with you without getting angry at you. It seems I can't disagree with you without putting you down in some way. And, and Michael, I don't, this is not a partisan statement, but clearly you, the, the rhetoric that was coming out of Washington and the president um, didn't help to bring people together. It, it was divisive, and, and that filtered down in a lot of people in elected office who were getting very, very angry at each other in, in so many different ways. I think the pandemic comes along, and when you're isolated, what's the worst thing to demonize somebody you disagree with? Not having contact with them. If you don't have contact with them, you just conjure up in your own um, in your own mind how awful they are. Well, we were left to our own little devices to think about how other people. Um, we're living, so I think the pandemic made greater, exacerbated the divisiveness that was part of our political and social rhetoric prior to the pandemic.
0: Yeah, well, we we all hope, Bonsignor, uh, that as we wend our way uh, through the pandemic and with uh, so many people losing their their lives on on a daily basis, that when mm-hmm. we come come out of this. Uh, that we're not going to go back to where we were a year ago. Um, it was just a year ago, January, we marched across the, the Brooklyn Bridge, as you can see uh, in, in the graphic behind me, um, to call an end to anti-Semitism and a march that was called No Hate, No Fear that we co-sponsored with, with UJA. Um, and uh, Cardinal uh, Dolan was there, uh, Bishop right. DiMarzio from the uh, the Brooklyn Diocese, Brooklyn Queens Diocese, uh, came as well, and uh, I, I'm just hopeful that maybe lessons have have been learned, and and hopefully uh, some of that polarization can be healed. I would hope that's the case, um,
1: and I'm I'm I I'm, I'll say it this way. I want to be hopeful, but genuine hope requires a commitment to action. Otherwise it's just a hallmark card. Genuine from our perspective, religious hope means I have a vision of a better world, a better society. And if I have that vision and that is what gives me hope, then I had best be working to do my part to make that vision real. So I'm hopeful, which means I need to have a commitment to making it happen.
0: Well, and I'm hopeful of partnering together uh, with, with you and uh, the Cardinal the Catholic Church uh, and other faith groups in New York, uh, as we have in, in, the, in the past to uh, address um, the uh, plague of, of uh, hatred yeah. that uh, we need to rid ourselves of. But uh, speaking of, of, of hope, uh, another part of the world uh, is in great need of, of hope as well. And that's the, the Middle East. Uh, can, can you expand on your own connection and experiences uh, with the Middle East and the Holy Land? Sure.
1: And I'll, I'll do it in a couple of different ways. Um, <clears throat> and, and, and Michael, I express my gratitude to, to you and the, um, the JCRC for sponsoring those missions to uh, Israel, which I Thank was you. privileged to be on a, a few years ago, which provided me with a great deal of, of kind of additional insight into what is going on in, in that area. I think it is, I mean, Israel is critically, critically important to Christians, to the United States. It is it's it's very very important that we we understand the role that Israel had. I think it's absolutely really critical, um, and we need to understand the tremendous challenges that are that are there. I mean, I um, <clears throat> you know it is it is not unknown to you that there is a real fear among Christians that there may not be a Christian left in the Holy Land 25, 30 years because of numbers. And that is a real concern to us. Again, we all know the complexity of terrorism, of refugees, of all of those, those issues that are into play. And so the question of refugees and the question of of the Arab, the Muslim pop, all of that is of concern to us, you know, in, in, in trying to figure out what the just answers are in the Middle East and in the Holy Land. Um, You know, the one piece, Michael, if I could go on, which I can speak with a little bit of, of personal experience. Yeah. Again, about two or three, maybe about three years ago, I did visit Christian refugees in Kurdistan, in Erbil. Right. Um, after probably a year or so, after ISIS had cleared everybody out of Mosul, hmm. the plains of Nineveh, and I visited the refugee camps that were there. Um, Catholic Near East Welfare Association is doing a lot of work in that area, and they sponsored a, a mission and it was a very, very moving, you know moving trip. Uh, I think it was almost overnight that 60,000 Christians were driven from Karakosh, the plains of Nineveh, out of there by ISIS, to Erbil, where they just sought um, where they sought refuge. and, and so, it is just such a difficult, difficult situation, which we need to pray about every single day.
0: Yeah, well, I, I think you're, you've touched on a very sensitive subject, and, and that is the, uh, the, the plight of Christian communities uh, in the Middle East. Um, we also we often hear of, of the persecution of Christian groups. Uh, it, it's not clear to, to us um, as to why uh, here in the United States um, Christians typically typically don't necessarily speak up uh, for their brothers and sisters uh, in in the Middle East, though we in, in the Jewish faith do it uh, regularly. Uh, I can you explain uh, what the relationship is or isn't between Christians in America and Christians in the Middle East? You know, I think it's it's Michael. You're not the first person to have
1: raised this and be honest, it was one of the reasons I was very, very uh, pleased to have been invited to go there. And when I came back, I spoke about the persecutions of Christians there. But I think you are you are right. It's not something that American Christians or Christians in the United States speak about. about. Why is that? Yeah. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is, you know, there is a little bit of, and I'm not saying it's right, but there's a little bit of reticence among some Christians like, well, maybe we shouldn't only, we shouldn't be speaking up for ourselves. Like we'll speak up if if others are being persecuted, but it's a little self-serving to speak up about ourselves. And I think that's real. I'm not saying it's the way it should be, but if you want an explanation as to why? I think there's a little bit of that that is ingrained in in Christians, and I would say in Catholics. Well, I shouldn't be promoting myself. I shouldn't be speaking up. Not saying exactly, but I think that's real. The other issue is, is and this has to do with being in the United States, and then the reality is <clears throat> the United States got these two big oceans on either side, and we tend not to be very internationally flavored in our perspective. We look at what's happening close to home. So I think, you know, that doesn't give you, that doesn't excuse it, but I think it may give your uh, your listeners a little bit of a sense of why it is the case. And I would say, um, <clears throat> Michael, I think one of the, the um, advantages that the Jewish community brings, there is such a strong tie with Israel and Jews in the United States, that it's almost impossible not to be aware of those things. Not the same. And I, I said this a couple of okay. years ago when I was invited um, by the UJA Federation to um, join some of your leadership on a trip to Rome. Okay. And um, <clears throat> and uh, we visited the Jewish ghetto in Rome. Mm-hmm. Etc. And in one of the conversations, um, I said something that I think shocked some of the Jewish community. I said, I said, you know, I said, Rome and the Vatican are basically irrelevant to our Christian faith. We're not tied to a land. We don't, we don't, we're not tied to a nation. We're not tied to, to a particular place, mm-hmm. uh, which is very different as I read in scripture readings um, earlier this week in our in our uh, situation, which was about King David. Mm-hmm. How clearly in the book of Samuel, um, there is a clear um, <clears throat> clear anointing of David, anointing of his house and a promise of his legacy. And periodically I preach uh, in the community, I said, you know, If you wanna understand a little bit about the strong place that Israel has to the Jewish community, just listen to what the book of Samuel says and you'll have a much better understanding of of how the Jewish community feels about Israel.
0: Maybe we should invite you to speak at a number of synagogues in New York as well about that. (laughs) 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 Um, It's interesting on on your first point um, uh, about uh, some Christian Americans not having that, the desire to speak up because uh, it's self-serving. Um, Hillel, uh, in the great sage Hillel, in our Ethics of the Fathers, Pirkei Avot, uh, says, it may not me, mealy, if I'm not for myself, um, who will be for me? If I'm only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? So you have to be for yourself, you have to be yeah. for others, and you have to take action. Uh, so that that's our orientation to it that's that's our approach yeah. um and uh it's just a bit befuddling sometimes uh, dealing i give you one example dealing with the maronite christians in, in lebanon um and uh just uh, i i just don't hear that clarion call uh that we we in the jewish community uh, would expect of ourselves uh but um uh, I'm not going to belabor the point <laughs> you've addressed. No, but, it. but
1: Michael, I think I think you're right. I think it's it's true, and I also think, and I'm not an expert on this, but in some of, um, you point out the Maronite Christians and their, I mean, obviously I'm a Roman Catholic, and most, right. um, you know, Catholics in the United States are Roman Catholics, but. There is oftentimes in some of those other parts of the world. There is a very um, complicated, but a very entwined relationship with some of the political establishment in those places. And, you know, particularly in some of those, those countries. And there's a real attempting to figure out how one, negotiates all of that. And I think that's some of what you may be, may be experiencing.
0: Yeah, thanks. Uh, but we've kind of opened up a, a, a door regarding Catholics um, and how they uh, observe as to as to others. Um, let, let's uh, talk for a few minutes about uh, Christmas season, uh, which is now upon us. Um, and I can't thank you enough, none of us at JCRC can thank you enough for taking time uh, in this week be before uh, the holiest day on the, on the Christian calendar to, to spend uh, a few minutes having a conversation. Um, so again, uh, our, our, our sincere gratitude. Uh, but how, how do Catholics observe Christmas uh, um, as opposed to other Christian denominations?
1: <clears throat> well, <clears throat> there are some Christian denominations, and again, I'm not an expert on this, who really downplay kind of the celebration of Christmas. Obviously believe in in Jesus Christ uh, and the mainstream Christian religions do. Um, But for for Catholics, we have two great feasts. I mean, there's a feast of Christmas and then there's the feast of, and I'll put it together, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Those two are are, are our two premier feasts. The way I would say it from a spiritual point of view
0: um,
1: is that Christmas is a feast of great joy, a great festival. And I might say, if I might borrow, it is really a festival of light. It is a festival of, we believe that the light came into the darkness and the darkness could not extinguish it. And so it is a festive, joyous feast. We get to Easter and Good Friday, and we deal with some very, very profound spiritual realities, um, not unlike Yom Kippur and and, and some of those aspects, which damper the total joy of, of those seasons because we know the way it came to be. So for us, it is just an incredible joy. And here's the joy for us. The joy is that we believe <clears throat> in only the way that religious mystery could say something, is we believe that our divine savior, Jesus, became truly human. And so, that what we celebrate is that our savior Jesus became one with us and therefore teaches us of the great possibilities of our humanity. Because if, if our humanity could hold the divine, then imagine how great that humanity is. And therefore the imperative that's part of it is that if we celebrate Christmas, we need to maximize our human potential. We have been shown the greatness of our humanity, and therefore we can't not seek to maximize that in love, in peace, in hope that we bring to the world, that we are called to be the light of God to, to the world.
0: How interesting that is. Thank you for that. How interesting that is that uh, we, we just ended the, the festival of, of Hanukkah. Uh, Hanukkah is very much a festival of, of light as well. Um, and, and how uh, these, these two uh, feasts or festivals um, are, are linked at times because our holidays are, are on the lunar calendar and the Christian holidays are on the solar calendar. Uh, that Hanukkah can actually, what we would call, be late uh, and come towards the end of, of December, as opposed to at the end of November and the beginning of December, or this year mid-December. Uh, but they're they're both festivals of, of of light. God works in mysterious ways uh, to bring two uh, distinct religions uh, together around a similar theme. Well, it, it is, and <clears throat> you know I like i
1: said i'm not a theologian um but we embrace the hebrew scriptures right we that is part of our tradition and again Michael, you're aware of this but you listeners this may be a little bit of information you know in the early centuries of <clears throat> of christianity there were some christians who said we want to get rid of what we would call the Old Testament. And it was clearly, clearly defined by the broader community, Christian community. No, that is our tradition. The Hebrew scriptures are important to us. They are part of our canonical, uh, canonical scriptures.
0: Right, they are. Um, and uh I know that have, having visited with many of, of my clergy friends in, in the Christian world, uh, looking at the Bible that they, they carry, it's, it's actually uh, what they refer to as the Old Testament and the New Testament. Right. Um, right. And we refer to it as the, the Tanakh, as the, the Torah, uh, the five books of Moses, the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the, the Ketuvim and the scriptures. Um, But let me go back to to Middle East uh, matters as well in in that um, we we talked about Rome, but we didn't talk about Bethlehem. Um, And uh, traditionally at the Church of the Nativity is a um, uh, a marking, uh, like a a midnight mass, I assume, uh, there. Um, Do you have any knowledge as to what's going to be happening this year because of of the pandemic?
1: I do, because... uh... My, like as you alluded to, um, I do have a weekly radio show. And on my show last week was the Chancellor, the president, the president of Bethlehem University. Really? And I spoke with him about um, about that. And there will not be the usual crowds in Manger Square in Bethlehem. Uh, there probably will be a very small mass most people will be in their own places so it will not be um, it will not be uh, the traditional Christmas in in Bethlehem and uh, so it, it, it is kind of very very sad that that it will be it'll be so so different this year.
0: yeah um, it, it's always uh, something which is, marked uh, globally through the media, uh, yep. particularly since we're seven hours uh, yep. behind. Uh, so, uh, yep. well, midnight there is only 5 p.m. here, so it's always going to end up on, on the evening news. And today news is a 24-hour cycle with the social media, yep. etc. cetera, let alone 24-hour news stations. But I, you, I wanted to-, so uh,
1: to Michael, even, let me just yeah. say one thing, yeah. because I think it's important that bringing people together trying to deal with some of the divisions we have to recognize that they exist so that we can work on them and that midnight mass in bethlehem always i think in a number of years was one of those events that realized that things still we still had a lot of work to do because the question was could people get through checkpoints how many people were going to be but in the end, we all understand the absolute need for security because of the potential of terrorism. And yet we also understand the need for people to be able to to worship. So almost in a sense, as you said, because of the media attention there, it highlighted that we weren't where, or we aren't where we need to be in that kind of religious understanding and that religious unity
0: yeah and, and speaking of religious understanding and you, you use the phrase bringing people together now, let's talk for a few minutes uh, about the uh, what is referred to as the judeo christian uh, tradition um, can can you offer your views on on the influence of judeo christian tradition on american culture uh, on society as, as a whole i mean do, do you view judeo christian tradition um as uh, as a reality or is it fiction?
1: Oh, it, it, it's an absolute reality without a, you know, without a doubt. I mean, <clears throat> this, that is kind of so much the history of, of the West, of whether it be the history of Europe, the history of this, this country. It's undeniable the the value that the Judeo-Christian tradition has brought, period. At the same time, yeah. <laughs> we are sinful and we are very, very, we are a sinful people and therefore there is a lot of blemish in that tradition. There is a lot of things that um, that took centuries to overcome. There are things still part of that tradition that we need to need to work out. But I have to tell you that I, I'll just share with you my own my own opinion. Yeah, we we cannot obliterate the past. We need to understand it. We need to recognize what's good. We need to recognize what's wrong, and then move forward from that, so I I don't think, that's just kind of my feeling, which I think is just a lot of common sense about recognizing where we are in the world.
0: And that's very important for us to contemplate Um, and um, kind of an outgrowth of that is that there's a new administration coming into, uh, into the White House uh, in, in Washington, um, and uh, Joe Biden identifies as as Catholic. Um, do you have any knowledge as to uh, to whom he turns, um, if he does to anyone within uh, the, the Catholic Church, uh, to influence uh, him, or not necessarily to influence him, uh, but to have an, an impact on his decision-making? I mean, is there a spiritual side uh, to this. Uh, the, it's only the second Catholic, uh, I believe, ever to be president of the United States. The first was John Kennedy. Yeah. Um, and um, is is that something also that the Catholic community takes pride in?
1: So uh, I have sh- I've shaken Joe Biden's hand <laughs> once. I've never had a conversation with him. So what I know is kind of from what I observe and maybe from what a few other people have have said to me. Um <clears throat> from every stretch of the imagination or from whatever we know, Joe Biden is a very, very traditional practicing Catholic. Hmm. He is not, you know, he is not extreme. He is he is like tens of millions of other Catholics in this country. So, and I would say my yeah. observation is relatively devout. I mean, he goes to mass every Sunday and, and, and in this day and age, not everybody's going to mass every Sunday. He seem he he seems to be, a very believing, practicing Catholic, and that motivates, that drives him. Now, let me just say this one one thing, because um, it is problematic for many, many Catholics, the fact that one of our preeminent issues, the sanctity of life, the dignity of life, from the first moment of conception, he has espoused a position which is not in accord with that preeminent Catholic value. So that's right. something that, that that causes a, a, a significant issue among, among uh, many, many Catholics. Having said that, um, I don't think there is any doubt that he is a practicing Catholic and he is one with his faith means something, it motivates Him in the way that he views a variety of of things. So in that sense, um, I think, you know, having said, I mentioned the one issue of, of, of abortion, which causes people, many Catholics, problems, but in many of the other Catholic social values, which stress the common good, preferential option for the poor, Concern for the stranger. I think there is a lot to be very, very hopeful in him bringing the best of those Catholic values into the Oval Office and into the policies uh, that hopefully our country will um, uh, will espouse going forward.
0: Oh, uh, that that's uh, very insightful and, and greatly appreciated. I. Uh, I have uh, two additional questions for you. Uh, one is, um, I, I've been told that there is a term called the Pope's Jews. Uh, can you define that for us? Well, I will tell you, because it was told to me
1: on the trip when I was in Rome yeah. uh, by uh <clears throat> with the UJA Federation. So this is passing on information that I learned from the Jewish community. So here's what I know, okay, that I'm told that the earliest Jewish diaspora community was in Rome. I think maybe 150 years before the common era, sometime, but it was there for a long time. And in the Roman ghetto, the Pope took a particular interest in that Jewish community. And again, looking at the Judeo-Christian tradition, there's a lot for us Christians to be ashamed about in the way that we treated Jews. But the Pope took a special interest in that community. And while by no stretch were they equal, but they they were prevented, I'm told, from some of the worst abuses of discrimination because they had the Pope as their their protector. And I'm told, which I think is a a nice story, is he didn't say they had to convert, but they had to listen to at least one or two sermons a week on Christianity. And if they listened to one or two sermons a week, they they, they got the benefit of kind of the papal protection as being the Pope's Jews. Now, Michael, that was told to me. I haven't done any independent research. But as I say, it's got a sense of verisimilitude to it, given the way that we negotiate the little bit of the messy world that we we live in.
0: Uh, Thanks for that answer. Um, uh, I I think we have to do a little bit more research on that. and uh, we're gonna end on, on, a, on a light note. Um, just th- this past week, we had a, uh, a, a great Jewish food debate uh, here at JCRC on, on a Zoom. And, and we had uh, judges, um, we had four judges, three of whom were uh, Protestant Christian pastors, uh, some two couples and an individual, and uh, one was a, uh, an Imam whom, whom you know. Um, so, uh, and we, we shared with them a number of of uh, kosher snacks, mostly from Israel, and wanted to you know to judge, just have a good time and, and to right. judge uh, the the taste and the texture, et cetera. So uh, as we're entering into uh, Christmas season, and you talked about feasts, uh, and we just ended Hanukkah, we certainly uh, feasted. Um, are there any Jewish foods that you are? You're a New Yorker. Uh, you're you're from the Bronx, like me. You're, you're right. from Yonkers. Uh, you, you and I talk like we're from New York. Um, are there any Jewish foods that you particularly like?
1: I couldn't live without bagels. <laughs> couldn't live without bagels. <laughs> well,
0: the, the, good, the good thing about, about bagels, um, to, to, to be a bit more mystical about it, is, is that they're round. Uh, and the, the roundness in our foods, I think, relates uh, to our, our cycle of life, our, our cycle of holidays, uh, our cycle of traditions, um, and so we, we've go- gone full circle in, in this conversation uh, with Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, the Executive Director of Catholic Charities. And I I'd just like to give you, Monsignor, we're so thankful that you're able to join us uh, for this Community Relations Corner episode. And uh, do you have like a, um, a last word that you wanna share with, with our audience, which is no doubt made up? Uh, Of members of the Jewish faith and in other faiths as well, hopefully some Catholics too.
1: Well, I guess, Michael, at this time of the year, um, you know, with the celebration of of Hanukkah, um, with the celebration of, of Christmas, I guess my final word would be just may we all be beacons of light to deal with the darkness of pandemic, the darkness of injustice. The darkness of economic de- devastation and whatever individual darknesses there are in our own families. And may this festival of, of lights, be it Hanukkah, be it Christmas, may it be a blessing so that we might be lights to our world in the upcoming year.
0: Amen Amen to that, uh, my, my dear friend uh, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Uh, thank you so much uh, for, for joining us. Uh, you're joining us in, in and of itself uh, is, is a blessing. And uh, it's a blessing as well to our, our wonderful and dedicated audience, those who are joining us live and those who will be seeing this on, on various uh, uh, platforms and social media. Uh, I'm Michael Miller, and we look forward to seeing you next time on Community Relations Corner. Happy holidays to all. Uh, Shalom and be well. Bye-bye.